Let's turn in our Bibles this morning, a little bit of a deviance from our previous study on the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 7 this morning. On Wednesday night, we were teaching through the whole Sermon on the Mount, which is made up of Matthew 5 through 7, and we walked through the sermon very carefully. I wanted to share some of its meat this morning so that we could sort of enjoy and walk through this part of the meal together. So that's the purpose. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Foundations are important. For 17 years, uh, my family and I lived in Pacific Grove, California, and during the Loma Prieta earthquake, of 1989, nothing was damaged in the city of Pacific Grove. And the reason was simple. The city basically is built upon a granite foundation. Therefore, the city didn't shake and damage didn't occur. There are a number of homes in Pacific Grove, though, that are built upon the ground directly without any kind of cement or concrete foundation. And you're standing on the street looking at a house like that. You can't tell from the outside whether that house has a strong foundation or whether it was just built on the earth. It's not possible to tell. You have to go to the house, crawl under the house, inspect things, and then you can tell. Can't tell just by looking if they have a solid foundation. It's only until that foundation is tested by some sort of cataclysmic activity, or perhaps seismic activity, that you can really tell what kind of foundation that house was built upon. And so it is with our lives. You can look at people, and from the outside, it may look like the foundation that they have built their life upon is a strong one. Or maybe you can't tell. But when the winds come, and when the storms come, And when these things come against that person's life or house, watch their lives, because that will determine the kind of foundation that that person's life has been built upon. Jesus begins this part, which is the close of the sermon, by talking about the house that is actually built upon a rock. And the picture is clear. It's a picture of a man that is building something. In the metaphor, he's building a house. But the clear meaning is that he's building a life. And specifically, he's building his own life. And he built his house, or he built his life, upon the rock. Now, to build something, we're talking about construction. We're talking about construction which 
uh, requires a plan. All construction requires a plan of some type or another. Blueprints laid out on the table, and the contractor follows the blueprints, gives instructions to his crew, and the house is built. Construction requires planning. There have to be materials that are provided. There have to be tools that can be used to build the house. And there has to be, obviously, skilled labor. And then there has to be diligence because only through diligence can the process be, be seen through to completion. Uh, the carpenter, the con- contractor can't give up in mid-job because if he does, then the house is incomplete. Now, some people, as they build their lives, don't consider the work involved in laying a foundation upon the rock. And they don't consider the need to see these things through to completion. Jesus talked about a man like that. He was a man who, when he sat down to content, uh, consider building a tower, he didn't count the cost. And so when he laid the foundation, he wasn't able to finish And people around him mocked him and said, this man began to build what he wasn't able to finish. He wasn't careful. He wasn't diligent. He didn't use all of his resources to do the job. He didn't build his life carefully. And Jesus predicted that in the days prior to his return, and we believe that we're in those days, there would be a lot of carelessness in these days about building. He talked about the days of Lot. He said that the days prior to his coming are going to be like the days of Lot had been. And in the days of Lot, where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by the judgment of God, people were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone, and everyone was destroyed. And Jesus said, even so it will be on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. There are going to be a lot of unprepared people when Jesus returns. A lot of people who didn't consider the need to build wisely upon a foundation and build their houses upon rocks. And therefore, they're going to be destroyed in the process. But in this case that Jesus is talking about, he calls this man a wise man. He did build his house on the rock. He found the right foundation upon which to build. He was selective. He didn't place his house randomly anywhere that it pleased him. He found the place that had solid bedrock, and he built there. He was intentional, and he was very specific. And Jesus was intending to teach us that the wise person who builds his or her life is going to be intentional, very specific, He's not going to just build his life, live his life randomly. There's going to be a plan involved with it. There's going to be purpose to it. There's going to be diligence in it. And it's going to be intentional. That's the picture here. And Jesus says, that's the wise man. Now there's another house. The house that was built upon the sand. And this man also is shown to us in the text. And this man, Jesus said, who built his house upon the the sand, Jesus says he's a foolish man. That's basically what he's about. He's a foolish man. He built his life foolishly. The Greek word for foolish is moros. We get the word moron from that. And it means he was dull or stupid. He was a blockhead like 
Susie, Susan used to call Charlie Brown all the time, you blockhead. You know, he was a blockhead. The lights may be on, but nobody's home. His life is absurd. He's an unthinking individual. He's an unreasonable individual. He's an irrational individual. He just didn't build his house on the right foundation. He built his house upon the sand. He had a house to build, as everyone does, and he actually built it. But when he built his house, he built it stupidly. And again, a lot of people's lives are like that. They build their houses, they have a house to build, they have a life to live, but they build them stupidly, very foolishly, without intention. And what is it that we're building our lives upon? And there are philosophies that people embrace, whether they know the name of the philosophy or not. Nonetheless, everybody builds their life, builds their house on some kind of a philosophy of life. Is it one of the present day philosophies that I'm building my life upon? What about materialism? The idea that the life of a human being consists of the abundance of the things that he possesses. Well, Jesus defeats materialism time and time again in his teaching. He talked about the rich fool who built barns and bigger barns and bigger barns and had so much that he could store in those barns and he just decided to kick back and say, you've got goods that are laid up for many years, so eat and drink and take your ease and rest and relax and just chill because you've got all you need. But God said to him, fool, this day your life is going to be required of you and then who will own those things that you've provided for yourself? Can't take it with you, Dylan saying, and you know it's too worthless to be sold. Materialism, that's a horrible philosophy to build one's life on, but yet we find it very commonly uh, the foundation that people try to build on today. What about atheism? Theism, of course, is the belief in a supreme being, a personal God. Atheism is the belief that there is no such supreme being. Well, what does Psalm 14.1 say? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So atheism is disputed by the word of God and by any reasonable look at the universe in which we live. What about the philosophy of Epicureanism? It's the pursuit of happiness on the one hand, but also Epicurus taught the avoidance of any pain. A lot of people build their lives on that kind of a philosophy. Their goal in life is to attain happiness, and their goal of li in life is also to avoid pain. Just as long as it's not unpleasant, I'm okay. But Jesus said in this text that floods and rain and wind will come to everyone. Why is that? It'll come because we live in a fallen world and it's unavoidable. And what a person has to learn is that true joy and lasting peace are provided by God himself. What gives true joy and what gives true uh, peace is the presence of God, the joy that is our strength and the peace that passes understanding. Circumstances, they'll fluctuate. Sometimes they'll be good, sometimes they'll be bad. Sometimes they'll make us happy, sometimes they'll make us sad. These things happen to everyone. The wind blows, the storm blows, and there are great heights as well. But if I build my life on those things and determine my joy and my peace upon the things that happen to me, I'm a fool because these things will happen to me and 
then I'm not availing myself of what God provides to me, his joy and his peace. Besides, as Jesus taught, if somebody pursues happiness directly, they'll never find it. In fact, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's the person whose life is built upon a hunger and a thirst for just being right and living rightly before God. That is the person that's satisfied. What about hedonism? Hedonism is a philosophy that says that we are devoted to pleasure and the pleasure of the senses. And the idea is that only that which is pleasurable is good. Only that with pleasurable outcomes is good. And that's the philosophy of hedonism. The problem is, is that the things that people pursue to pursue pleasure end up becoming chains around our neck and ropes around our bodies and we become imprisoned by the very things that we're pursuing. So someone says, well, it's pleasurable to drink alcohol, but then that person has to deal with hangovers, DUIs, embarrassment over drunken behavior, and then an addiction to alcohol. And so it is with anything that I pursue as an end in and itself and try to make that the foundation of my life. What about different religious philosophies? What about Buddhism? Which isn't really a religion in the sense that there's no God in Buddhism. It's just a philosophy. We have a dead founder. Buddha is no longer alive. There's no God in Buddhism. It's a destructive philosophy because really the logical outcome of, of, of Buddhism is that our lives are completely meaningless. And so since our lives are completely meaningless, why do they need to continue to be lived? Just think about the rocker Kurt Cobain who took his life. He committed suicide he was a committed Buddhist. Why did he commit suicide? Because he came to the philosophical conclusion in his own thinking that his life was meaningless according to the tenets of Buddhism. Now, he ha you have to say that he was very consistent. He lived very consistently with his worldview. But his worldview was a lie. And so, as a result, he unfortunately and tragically took his own life. What about the religion of Hinduism? Well, 330 million Hindu gods. The Bible says that these gods that the Gentiles worship are actually demons and not gods at all. And so we've got capricious demons, 330 million of them within the framework of Hinduism. And how do you possibly satisfy enough of these gods to attain whatever you're hoping to attain through the process of Hinduism? reincarnation and karma and so on and so forth. Hope is destroyed. There is no possibility to actually experience atonement or forgiveness for one's sin. And there's no way to know whether you have been forgiven. And human life becomes meaningless. And cultures that have given themselves to Hinduism as their reigning philosophy are the most devastated and horrible cultures imaginable to live in. Why? It's because of their worldview. It's because of the way they've decided to live their lives. Well, what about Mohammedism? That's what they used to call Islam, Mohammedism, because it's the follower of the prophet, Mohammed, a dead prophet. How did he advance his views, by the way? 
through violence and intimidation and force. Why would anyone want to follow a dead prophet who advanced his views and his religion through violence, intimidation, and force? It obviously isn't consistent with the true and living God. What about a more modern philosophy, postmodernism? In postmodernism, we're taught that there's absolutely no truth and that there's nothing that is absolutely true. So your version of the truth is just as valid as my version of the truth, and my, valid is, my version is just as valid as your version. No one can know for sure what really is true, or even if there is such a thing as truth. And boy, postmodernists are dogmatic about this, that there is no such thing as truth. But is their statement that there is no such thing as truth true? See, that's the problem with postmodernism. It's a dogmatic assertion which cannot be proven to be true. What about post-postmodernism, as my friend Daniel Fusco writes about in his book? Well, post-postmodernism says that we're in a different framework completely than postmodernism. Uh, post-postmodernism uh, believes that there is a spiritual world and believes that there is spiritual reality and Post-postmodernists are sometimes spiritual people, sometimes they're not. But what post-postmodernists do is they pick and choose what they want to experience. They're not going to deny categorically that truth exists, but they'll just pick which versions of it they want to adhere to. So they're very eclectic in their choices. They pick a little of this, a little of that, and that becomes the new reality. But the existence of God makes post-postmodernism impossible. Because in Psalm 100, verse 3, we're told, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. If there is a true and living God that created the universe and is responsible for the existence of human life, then we owe our existence to Him, and He's the one that decides what our, what our life means. Not We don't decide these things. He decides what our lives mean, and that's what Psalm 100, verse 3 tells us. Now, people build their lives knowing, knowing it or not, on any of these philosophies and other ones that weren't named. But the bottom line is, are we building our lives upon these lies or are we building our lives upon the truth? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Specifically, are we building our lives on the truth as it is in Jesus Christ? When Peter made the confession of faith concerning Jesus, he said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And you are Peter, Petros, a small stone. And upon this rock, Petra, a large stone, a large rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying simply this. You have just confessed my Messiahship, Peter. You have just identified me as the Son of the living God and as the Messiah, the Christ predicted in the Old Testament. That's who you just said I am. And upon that confession and what it means, I will build my church. That's the rock. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
Paul the Apostle writes about the rock from which the children of Israel drank in the Old Testament. Remember Moses spoke to the rock and water came out? Uh, And then earlier he struck the rock and water was to come out? Well, that spiritual rock was Jesus Christ. So who is the rock? The rock is Jesus and the confession of his Messiahship. But how do we build on that rock? This is where this statement here of Jesus in Matthew 7 becomes very important to understand. And it's tricky. Because how do I build upon the rock? How can I build a life that is on a foundation which will not be moved when the wind and the storms and the floods come? How can I do it? What is the key? Some would say, well, it's just, you know, It's just Jesus. Just build your life on Jesus. And that's true. There's no question about that. But it's even more specific than that. And I want you to notice the text in verse 24. Jesus said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. That's the way to do it is to hear Jesus' sayings and do them. But specifically, what sayings of Jesus are we to hear and do? Remember and look at what Jesus said. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. What sayings is he talking about? He's talking about the sayings that he's been going on and on about from chapter 5 all the way to this point. He's talking about the whole Sermon on the Mount. Whoever hears these sayings of mine as contained in the Sermon on the Mount and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. So we're not talking about random sayings. We're talking about specific sayings. We're talking about sayings of Jesus. And we're talking about the sayings of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said, whoever hears these sayings and does them, whoever listens to the point of understanding, that's what it means to hear. Now, there are some who hear and don't understand. And what happens to a person who hears something that Jesus teaches and does not understand it? What happens? According to Jesus, in the parable of the sower, if someone hears something that Jesus says and does not understand it, Then this is what happens. The wicked one comes, the devil comes, and steals away from that person the word that was sown in their heart. If they don't understand it, Jesus said clearly, the devil will steal it. So only when someone comes to the point of hearing it, to the point of understanding it, is that truth safe within that person's heart and life. But if there is no understanding, the wicked one will come and snatch away what was sown in the heart. But it's not even enough just to hear it. Jesus said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, so it has to be done as well. Remember what Jesus said. He said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So it's hearing to the point of understanding. So when I'm hearing Jesus teach me something, 
I need to get to the place where I really understand what he's talking about. What does this mean? And specifically, what does this mean to me? What does this mean for my life? I need to do the work, put in the effort to find that out. If I'm lazy and I don't bother to read further, I don't bother to study, I don't bother to look into it at all, I just kind of let it roll over the top of me, then the devil comes and steals it. So there's work involved here. There's intentionality involved here. But that's not enough just to hear it to the point of understanding. I've also got to do something about it. If I'm going to be building my house upon a solid, rocky foundation that won't, be destroyed when storms come. I've got to obey it and depend upon the Spirit of God to put it into my life. So what this means for us is that we need to take a careful look at the sayings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And we don't have time to do this. I'm hoping just to whet the appetite a little bit so that we can become students of this sermon and learn it to the point of understanding and to the point of obedience. Because there may be times coming, folks, when we're going to wish that we had paid attention to the sermon this morning and to the words of Jesus. Because times are getting tougher all the time in America. Persecution is on the rise. Legislation is already being passed, which could make it very difficult for believers to continue in their faith in a public manner without some level of intense persecution coming against them. Are we ready for such an an occurrence? Are we ready for such a situation? We will be if we're wise human beings who will build our houses, our lives upon the rock. We'll be ready for it. The Lord will sustain us in it. He'll be faithful toward us. But we've got to do the work on our part to make sure that our houses are built upon the rock. So what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, he talked about the Beatitudes and being the salt of the earth. And you know the very first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So right at the very beginning, and then the next one, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Right at the beginning of the sermon, we're brought right into the need to be humble before God, to recognize our spiritual poverty and be willing to confess our own sinfulness and weakness. It all starts there. And then it goes on through the rest of the Beatitudes. And the person who lives the Beatitudes is actually the salt of the earth. Because that person is living a life that serves as a preservative against evil in the culture. Because that's what salt did in the first century. Its primary purpose, aside from taste and adding taste to food, was to provide a preserving influence upon meats and things that would tend toward putrefaction. That's what salt did. And Jesus said, you, you believers who are living the Beatitudes, you're the salt of the earth. And then Jesus said that we're the light of the world. The commandment there is let your light so shine before men. That's something to obey. What does it mean to let my light so shine before men that they might see my good works, glorify the Father in heaven? It means that my Christianity can't be this private thing that I only keep to myself. And nobody knows that I'm a Christian except for me, myself, and I, and maybe somebody really, really close to me. But other than that, 
my Christianity is kept under wraps. No, let it out. Let it be known. Let your light so shine before men that they can see that what you're doing comes from the Father himself. Go ahead, let the cat out of the box. Let the truth out of your life. Let the light shine. That's the idea. And Jesus and the Father will be glorified in the process. Jesus taught in this sermon that our righteousness had to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That was a tall order for those that were listening to Jesus' words in the first century. But Jesus explained what he meant. Our righteousness had to be greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees with regard to the law of Moses. Why was that? Well, the Pharisees and the scribes, they interpreted the law of Moses in such a way as that it seemed like they were able to keep it. They interpreted it externally. Murder meant taking the life of another human being. Adultery meant having sexual relations with someone that was not your spouse. Taking an oath meant swearing uh, you know, by something other than God himself. And they always had ways to work around the actual heart and spirit of the commandment. But Jesus said, no, it's much deeper than that. Adultery is the lust within the heart. And murder is the anger and disdain and, uh, you know, the expression of anger that we have towards other human beings. That's the root of all murder. And so Jesus went much deeper. So with regard to the law, we've got to see the law as spiritual, not just as of the letter. With regard to spiritual practices, Jesus talked about how we do good deeds and how we pray and how we fast and in each case we're not to do it like the hypocrites who love to be seen as great fasters or great givers or great prayers we're to be doing these things as unto the father in secret the father who sees in secret will reward us openly so jesus takes religion and he makes it personal between us and the father and says that's who you live for that's who you do your righteousness toward that's who you pray toward that's who you fast for when you do fast these are the important things regarding spiritual practices and then he addresses the need to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the pharisees with regard to our treasures and what we treasure in life they treasured material things they loved money jesus taught and the Gospels attest to. They, they were lovers of money. And so Jesus nailed them on that and said, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then he went in to teach them about that, his own disciples, about how that we can trust our Father in heaven to provide the things we have need of. We don't have to lay up for ourselves treasures here on earth. And even beyond that, our righteousness have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees with regard to our judgment of others. Because if there's one thing that the Pharisees and the scribes were, and that is they were very judgmental and critical and uh, those kinds of people. And they not only judged what people did according to their standards, but they also judged their motives and Jesus 
is teaching us in this sermon that we don't have access to people's motives. We don't know what their motives are. All we can do is look at what people do. And we are not the final arbiters over people's eternal lives. I have no, uh, no basis of any opinion as to whether someone is going to go to heaven or hell, except for any known fact about their relationship with Jesus Christ when they die. But sometimes even that is not completely known, so we don't completely know. We have to leave these judgments to God. That's his job. So we don't make final decisions about people, and we don't try to assume that we know what their motives are and judge their motives. We can only look at people's actions, and actions will tell us what people do. That's important to recognize, and that's a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus said if you're going to be involved in helping other people and helping them grow and improve, then the thing to do is first take the beam out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then and only then are we qualified to help others in their areas of deficiency. And then he talked about the need for discernment in an age of false prophets. Because Jesus said that broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life and few find it. But the false prophets reverse that. They say broad is the way that leads to life. That's true. And it's not true that narrow is the way that leads to life at all. The false prophets let everybody in and the false prophets say that everyone can be saved no matter what pathway they take or what door they travel through or what narrow entrance or non-narrow entrance they try to enter into. But that's the message of the false prophet. We need discernment about people like that. What's their message about Jesus? And it's these same false prophets that will say, Lord, Lord, but not do the will of the Father in heaven. Jesus said, many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And didn't we do many wonderful works in your name? And Jesus will say to them in that day, depart from me, I never knew you. And we need discernment about that type of a person. So the foundation that people build upon how to build upon the rock. We have to listen to the point of understanding and then that leads us to a place of obedience and that would take us into the whole study of the Sermon on the Mount. These sayings, Jesus said, these are the things upon which we build our lives. Now what is the reason for people having a weak foundation? I'd like you to flip over to a somewhat parallel passage in Luke chapter 6. Turn there with me to Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 46, 47, excuse me. You're going to recognize these words. They sound very similar to what we just read in Matthew 7. But in Luke 6, 47, Jesus said, Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I'll show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, 
laid the foundation on the rock, and when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now what's what's the difference between this and what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7? Basically, one added point of interest and one fact that wasn't included in the earlier passage. We're clear about who built his house upon the rock. He's heard and done the sayings of Jesus. That remains the same. But another fact about this man is in verse 48. He's the one who dug deep and laid his foundation on the rock. He dug deep. But the other person who built his house on the earth without a foundation, he's the one, verse 49, who heard and did nothing. That's the thing. He heard it, but he did nothing. That's what made him a foolish man. He didn't take the time to dig deep, to find the bedrock. He heard the things that he was supposed to hear. He was in proximity to the things that he was supposed to hear. He was within earshot. He may have listened to it on the Christian radio. He may have downloaded it from the World Wide Web. He may be listening to it in his car to and from work. But he's foolish because he did nothing. He didn't do anything with it. There was no change. He thought that by hearing it, that would be enough. He didn't realize that hearing it has to also include doing it if the right foundation is going to be laid. And so Jesus' categorization of this man is that he did nothing because he didn't obey or apply the truth that he'd heard. That made him a fool. And that's what made his foundation so unstable. He didn't take the time to dig deep to find the bedrock. He didn't care about the rules of building buildings. He didn't consider the plans or regard the future. That's what made him a fool. Now the the problem that we have, and this is probably true with all of us, is that sometimes we wait too late. We wait for the floods and we wait for the storms and we wait for the winds to see whether or not our foundation is strong. But if we wait too long, it may be too late. Because it's not the time to test the building in the midst of the storm. The time to test the building is in the living of the life. What am I going to do with my life? Upon what have I built my life? What kind of effort have I put into it? So Jesus speaks to us seriously. He speaks to us seriously because these are serious matters. Wouldn't you agree? This is talking about our lives. This is talking about the future. This is talking about what it's going to look like for us in, say, 20 years. Or 30 years if the Lord tarries. Or 10 years or even next year. 
what is my life going to be like? And it's really a lot of it up to us. Remember what Jesus kept saying throughout the Gospels, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He said it repeatedly to each of the messages that he gave to the churches in Asia in Revelation 2 and 3. To him that has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said in another place, the one who has, to him more shall be given. But the one who does not have, from him shall be taken that which he seems to have. So he keeps warning us again and again, encouraging us, do something with the truth, pursue it, take heed how you hear, take heed what you hear, pursue it, add to it, add to your faith virtue, add to your virtue knowledge, add to your knowledge temperance, add to your temperance love and brotherly kindness and these sorts of things. Just keep moving because the more you have, the more you'll get. And the more you apply, the more spiritual reality will come into your life. But the one who does nothing, like this guy here, you know, it's shocking. You know, you talk to believers and try to assess what does their Christian life look like from Sunday to Sunday. And for some, the amount of effort put into it is so minimal that it's hard to even recognize it as effort at all. That would characterize, that lifestyle characterizes the foolish man. We don't need to be that man or that woman. We can be the man or woman that Jesus talks about. And of course, you know, as we've been talking about community, this is something that's done in community. If it were just up to me, and I was an island, and I was the only one that had to make these decisions, it would be very hard, but we're in the middle of other people who have the same heart and the same love and the, the same desire, and we get to come together regularly. And like the parable of the pea that we spoke about recently, the peas remain pot hot as long as they remain on the pile. And so it is with each of us. We remain fervent in our, in our desire to build our houses upon the rock as long as we remain close to one another. That really helps really helps so what will we do that's the decision and that's what Jesus leaves us with when they heard him speak as it says in the close of Matthew 7 they were astonished at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority I mean he was the authoritative son of God giving us eternal wisdom about what life should be like let's pray Lord, it's just something that is important for us to always remember. And you've given it to us in the sermon. And so we have great need to learn what you said and to understand it and to apply it and to live it. So with all of us in this room, you have great love for each of us and thank you for that. And you have a great heart to see us live a life that matters that has eternal strength to it and will bear spiritual fruit from it. These are things that you want, that you desire. Lord, your plan for us is a good plan. They're thoughts of good and not of evil to give us a future and a hope. Thank you for making it clear to us.
what it is that you expect from us and how we can live our lives. And as we pray this morning, we pray for anyone here that has never allowed Jesus to become part of their lives. We pray that this morning would be the day, the moment, the time when that really takes place. People maybe that have been building their houses and their lives on foundations that are made out of sand or out of dirt and lives that are certainly going to crumble when things get tough. We pray, Lord, for them. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open up hearts and minds this morning to understand their need for Jesus, the rock of the ages, the eternal and the living and the true God, and the Savior that is besides no other Savior. We thank you, Lord, for that. And as we're in this attitude of prayer, I just have a word to share with anyone that has not yet made Jesus Lord. God does love you, and he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to pay for your sins. And the Bible says that we cannot come into the kingdom of God without him giving us life. He has to give us life. But the Bible says that this life that he gives us is a gift. It's something that he gives to us as a gift, a precious gift. And the Bible says that as we are born of God and as we are saved, we are saved not because of our own decision to be saved or not because of our flesh, not because of the will of man, but we're saved because of the will of God. It's God's will to save you as you believe in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. You have to open your heart and receive Jesus. Let him in. So how many are there this morning that would say, that's exactly what I need to do, and that's exactly what I want to do this morning. I want to receive Jesus and let him in. I want him to be my Savior, and I want him to be my Lord. Would you just raise your hand, right where you're seated? I'd like to pray with you this morning. Anyone this morning? I didn't see. Oh, thank you. God bless you. I see that hand over there, okay, in the back. Anybody else this morning? It's time to make some decisions. Praise the Lord. Pray this prayer after me, those of you that raised your hand, just in before the Lord. Father, I recognize my need for a Savior. And I admit my sinfulness. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I believe that he rose from the dead. He's alive. I receive your gift this morning, Father. I receive Jesus. Make me a new person. Please forgive me of my sins. And give me the power to live for you. And to begin building my house upon the rock. 
And I thank you for hearing this prayer.